today is based. John chapter 9, verse 1 to 12, and then we continue on to 35 to 38. This is the word of God. As he passed by, he saw a man blind from birth, and his disciples asked him, Rabbi, who sinned, this man or his parents, that he was born blind? Jesus answered, It was not that this man sinned or his parents, but that the works of God might be displayed in him. We must work the works of him who sent me while it is day. Night is coming where no one can work. And as long as I am in the world, I am the light of the world. Having said these things, he spit on the ground and made, the, made mud with the saliva. Then he anointed the man's eyes with the mud and said to him, Go wash in the pool of Siloam, which means scent. So he went and washed and came back seeing. The neighbors and those who had seen him before as a beggar were saying, Is this not the man who used to sit and beg? Some said, It is he. Others said, No, but he's like him. He kept saying, I am the man. So they said to him, Then how were your, your eyes open? He answered, The man called Jesus made mud and anointed my eyes and said to me, Go to Siloam and wash. So I went and washed and received my sight. They said to him, Where is he? He said, I do not know. Verse 35, Jesus heard that they had cast him out, and having found him, he said, Do you believe in the Son of Man? He answered, Who is he, sir, that I may believe in him? Jesus said to him, You have seen him, and it is he who is speaking to you. He said, Lord, I believe, and he worshiped him. Please be seated, the word of the Lord. Friends, I do not know if you have uh, seen this TV show that uh, I think came out uh, a couple years back, and uh, it's called C, right? Jason Momoa is, is there, it's, it's the main character. Um, Baba Foss, I think is the name, right? And he was in a world where no one, and literally no one, can see, except a few people later on in the uh, series. But this is a series that takes place a few centuries, this is the plot, right? After a mysterious virus, much like COVID, I presume. But in this case, it wipes out nearly all of humanity, leaving only two million people all of whom go blind because of that virus. So the lack of sight becomes a genetic trait, and being blind becomes the name of the game. Now, of course, uh, they adapt, and because of this mass uh, blindness, they go back to this uh, hunter-gatherer dark age, and living their lives out in the forest. And I thought that is a plot that is so apt, so fitting to describe our world today. That a lot of people, the majority, I would say, of people in this world are blind. Not physically, but spiritually. They do not see where they come from and where they're going. They cannot see that they are made in the image of God that their lives should find their meaning and purpose in and only in Jesus Christ. They are spiritually blind and they couldn't see that reality. 
beyond everyday lives. So friends, today I would like to go through with you um, this text that is, I think, so pivotal in our understanding of how God redeems our suffering in John chapter 9. And I'm going to uh, discuss this in two uh, subheadings, the religious and secular views of suffering and the gospel view of suffering. Only two headings uh, this morning. Now, I think everybody uh, would agree that, you go uh, to the next slide, please. I just couldn't seem to press this. Uh, there we go. Everybody would agree that suffering is the greatest of all human problems, both intellectually, how we are supposed to understand suffering, and practically, how we can endure suffering. And often it's a matter of personal tragedy, isn't it? Sickness or disability, bereavement, unemployment, being jilted by somebody we love, being told by our doctor that we only got a few months to live. Our hearts cry out, why, Lord, why should this thing happen to me? And there are no Christians in past history and today who never mention that sort of prayer, why, O oh Lord, do I suffer? You felt like that in a moment of personal tragedy. And sometimes it's not just a personal tragedy. Sometimes it's bigger than that. It's a social tragedy. Accidents, disaster, war. If you follow the news, what's happening currently in Gaza, you will know there's uh, untold suffering that is uh, unfolding as I speak. There's flood, there's earthquake. And even if we're not personally involved in those suffering, our heart uh, cries defiantly in protest. And this is what we come up with usually. We think either God is not good or He's not powerful enough. It's hard to reconcile that the painful realities of human suffering with the doctrine of God's love and power. Because if God is so good, why does he allow suffering? And if God is so powerful, why doesn't he stop it? That is at the core of our problem. And that is equally the reason why so many people do not want to know Christ because they think, how could Christ allow suffering to occur in human lives and did nothing? We say either God wants to stop suffering, but he cannot, or he can stop suffering, but he will not. And if he lacks power and goodness, how can we worship him as God? But you see, this story gives us a hint. This case study of a man born blind provides not a simplistic view that we usually have, and that's why one of the reasons I love the Bible is that it doesn't give us simple answer to a complex reality of our lives, of our human suffering. 
it gives us equally complex answer, but I think one that will help us to endure suffering throughout our lives. And because it's a complex answer, I choose to preach on this text twice, this Sunday and next Sunday, so make sure you do return next Sunday to um, hear the sequel of uh, today's preaching. So the man we meet in this chapter was born blind, congenital birth. He had never seen the skies, let alone the rainbows. He never um, sees the faces of her loved ones. And the only thing that a blind man could do in that day was begging. So when Jesus was passing by, this man was actually begging. And not only that, he opened his heart uh, to the Savior. When Jesus arrived on the scene, things changed for him, right? The man was obviously made to see, but that's not the greatest miracle. The greatest miracle is not the opening of his eyes. The greatest miracle, as we read before in verse 35 to 38, is the opening of his heart. And we read in verse uh, 2 uh, and, and then 3, right, the disciples' responses. And that's what we're going to focus uh, this morning. The disciples did not look at the man as an object of mercy, but rather as a subject of theological discussion. They know the man has congenital blindness, and they immediately jump to the assumption that this blindness was caused by sin. They see that he is blind, and in their mind, obviously, someone has sinned. So their question is, whose sin was that? The parents or his sins? Let me just uh, digress a bit here and mention two quick points. When bad things happen to God's people, to Christians, we often fall into the same mode of thinking as the disciples. What did I do? What sin have I committed that brought on this suffering in my life? If you fail your exam, you're thinking, what could I have done? What sins have I committed that I may not be aware of that caused my failure in this exam? That, that's kind of a default uh, mode. The second point I want to uh, highlight here, it is much easier to discuss sin as an abstract subject or discuss someone whom we presume is sinful, right? So if we see someone who is suffering, we may not say this out loud, but in our hearts and minds, we think, what is it that this person has done that he deserves this kind of punishment from God. See, it's easier to think like that than to minister to someone who is struggling with sin. When, he, when we hear someone who is in pain, we're far more interested in the details and the analysis of what, why, when, and where than we are interested in finding out what we can do to reach out and help this person. See, friends, don't just be curious Christians. Be compassionate Christians, offer practical help, and you'll be surprised what you can uh, do 
to help alleviate the suffering of others. A listening ear, perhaps a season of prayer, a note, a hug, with no lecture on the sovereignty of God, obviously, a meal, maybe some free babysitting service from you. See, all those things are practical help that can be so helpful for the person who's suffering. But that's not what these disciples did. They asked Jesus as if this man couldn't hear the questions. But obviously, he's only blind. He is not deaf, so he could, he could hear the questions being asked to Jesus. Whose sin is this, the parents or his? And obviously, Jesus said, neither. Jesus refuted them. But I want us to look at what is it the philosophy behind their views, the disciples' views. And then we're going to discuss a couple more views that are attached to religious and as well as secular views. The first one, when the disciple asks, is this the parents' sins or his sins? They basically think that suffering is always the punishment for sin. Now, obviously, suffering and sin are linked in general terms. So, for example, if there's a drunkard who falls over in the street and then hurt himself, and obviously his suffering is due to his own sin. But although this is true in some cases, we have no right to say that every suffering is a punishment from God. Because if we believe that, if we think that every suffering is a punishment from God, we fall into the teaching of Hinduism that is not in the Bible. Then they teach the terrible doctrine of karma. And that's what a lot of people, even though they don't uh, believe, they don't subscribe to Hinduism, they do believe in karma. Karma basically says that you eat the fruit of your own wrongdoing. You just have to live the, con the consequences of your own uh, mistakes. And if not in this life, maybe in the next life, or the one after that, or the one after that. That's what the Hindus call the samsara, an endless cycle of reincarnation. Now, in this, in this sense, the disciples are much like people who believe in the doctrine of karma. And that's essentially what uh, Job's friends, if you remember in the book of Job, in the Old Testament, his friends were trying to convince Job that he was suffering because he was being punished for his sins. And we might think the same way, except that God actually said in the end that that's not the case at all. If Jesus believed in the law of karma, he would not have said to the disciples, Neither, not the parent's sin, not his sin. But he said, the reason why he was blind from birth is something else, but not the parent's sin or his sins. And by the way, the New Testament speaks out very clearly against reincarnation, affirming that man is destined to die once and after that to face judgment, Hebrew 9.27. So there's no cycles, endless cycles of reincarnation. So that's, that's what 
uh, is behind the disciples' question. But the second view that is often um, associated with a lot of people in the modern world today is suffering as an illusion. It is an illusion. It has no reality because it is only an illusory thing. And that's not Hinduism, but that's Buddhism. Buddhism, you know, teaches four-circled noble truth. All life is suffering, that's number one. The second one, suffering is caused by desire. It's not something uh, that is caused by something external, but something that's caused by something internal within us. So that's why the third truth that they uh, teach is that the way to eliminate suffering is to get rid of your desires. Do not have desires, and you don't have suffering. The way to eliminate desire then is by enlightenment in following the eightfold parts of Buddha. See, but the Bible is different. The Bible does not neglect suffering. It is the reality. It is as real as just pinch yourself for now, especially if you're falling asleep, right? And you feel that what you just did to yourself is as real as any pain that humans experience today. And because suffering is real, that was the very reason why Christ Jesus came to the world and suffered for us and died for us. The third uh, view, just quickly, suffering is meaningless. Suffering is random. See, in the ancient world, People who believed that suffering had no meaning, they became stoics. So basically, stoics would say, let's accept suffering and have this remarkable fortitude against suffering. You know, help your nose up and you'll be fine. Or Epicureans in the old days who, who would say, no, do not accept suffering, but we have to escape suffering, seek and escape from it by doing things that you want, whatever your heart desires. And in the modern world, we do not um, call them Stoicism or Epicureanism, but we just call them existentialism. And this is one of the most popular uh, thinking and philosophy uh, that, that modern people have when they face suffering. Because they believe, I mean, if you don't believe me, um, Again, uh, ask, uh, what's the name? Kelly Clarkson, right? What does not kill you makes you stronger. Maybe it will be um, helping us to make us tougher, wiser, but deep down, if you have um, suffering, it will also make us more cold as a person, more cynical, more pessimistic, more defensive, more bitter. So that song is not completely accurate, isn't it? What does not kill you makes you stronger, maybe, but also at the same time, it makes me a very unpleasant person. Without God, friends, all suffering might be random, meaningless, hope-crushing, but what does not kill us on the outside may actually kill us on the inside if we do rely on, on our fragile, unreliable selves. 
See, a lot of people say when life gives you a lemon, make lemonade. But only the gospel ensures that each cup of lemonade that you make doesn't get more sour each time. And because Christ has come to the world, and he is the son of the sovereign and loving, loving God, he knows that the radical fluctuations of his life are carefully custom-made for an ordained purpose. And that brings us to the second point, the gospel and suffering. So if you, if you notice first three, first three uh, says clearly the answer of Jesus. Why was this man born blind? It was not that this man sinned nor his parents, but that the works of God might be displayed in him. So Jesus was asked about the cause of the man's blindness, but he answers that in terms of its purpose. Now, this is very interesting, right? So the question was, uh, was uh, around the antecedent. What caused this man to be born blind? But instead of answering that in terms of the cause and effect, Jesus gave them the purpose of his suffering. And that, that gives us a pattern, isn't it? Whenever you ask, why, Lord, you want to know the cause of your suffering, perhaps that's not the right question, friend. And the question that you have to ask, to what end, Lord? What is this for, Lord? What is the purpose of my pain? That would be a better question. Because Jesus' reply locates the tragedy within God's control, not in terms of cause and effect, but purpose. The purpose is in view of the manifestations of God's work, of God's glory, as a witness to the light before man. So when Jesus said in chapter 8, and also in this chapter, chapter 9, he is the light of the world. Now this is exhibit A. This is a case study. His life is meant to demonstrate that Jesus is the light of the world. See, friends, suffering will reveal God's glory because all suffering that we have is within His sovereign control over our lives. And we can see many specific examples in Scripture of God's glory revealed through suffering. In the next few weeks, we're going to find uh, Lazarus, and in John 11:4, it says the illness that he had before his death was for the glory of God. The Israelites were kept as slaves in Egypt in order that God may deliver them and showed his glory. David was haunted by Saul for years and years so that he could pen down those beautiful psalms for our encouragement today. Paul, the Apostle Paul, suffered in prison a few times so that Christ's power might be seen through his suffering. Friends, God custom designed suffering for each one of us so that we rely not on our health, not on our money, not on others' approval or success, in, in short, not relying on ourselves, but rather on God who raised the dead. See, if the 
most terrible consequences of suffering is death, right? There's no other more terrible consequence of suffering than death. But guess what? God raises the dead. And therefore, suffering shouldn't be the end of everything in our lives. I want to share a story of a woman called Helen Keller. Now, this woman uh, is not related to Tim Keller whatsoever, so um, if, in case you think um, uh, of that. But she was born in Alabama in 1880, and she lost her sight and hearing at the same time as a result of meningitis at the age of 19 months when she was still a baby. But she refused to give up. She became the first blind deaf person to effectively communicate with the sighted and hearing world. In fact, she went to uni, and it's at age 24, she graduated from uh, uni. Not only that, she graduated magna cum laude as the first deaf, deaf blind person to earn a Bachelor of Arts degree um, in the US. And this is what she then said, I will dedicate my life, the rest of my life, to help those who are blind around the world. And then she traveled around the world, visiting 35 countries throughout her life in five continents between 39 and 57. And this is something to my embarrassment. She actually has published 12 books. Friends, she published 12 books and she couldn't see and she couldn't hear. And this is what she wrote in many uh, of her writings. What could be worse than being born without sight? Being born with sight and no vision. And those of us who can see clearly today, who can see me preaching on this pulpit, but if you don't have that vision from Christ, if you do not have that uh, vision of God's glory that will be revealed in your life and through your life, then you are in a worse condition than her, than someone who's being born without sight. Now, I'm not sure whether Helen Keller is a real Christian. I read that she was, but maybe not uh, in the traditional sense that we understand Christianity. But she did write something that is quite powerful. See, friends, I do not know what uh, um, suffering that you're experiencing now, but you might be uh, experiencing some suffering. But this is what uh, you need to understand. There is a purpose in your suffering. It's not meaningless. It's not random. It's not illusion. But there's a purpose that God has uh, given you. And you know, the, the hope that we have in the middle of our suffering is in Christ Jesus. Look, I do not know what reasons, what purposes that God has for each suffering. A mother who lost her baby, a family who lost uh, their loved ones in an accident, there's no answer to those kinds of seemingly random events. But I know what the reasons cannot be. 
It cannot be that God did not love us. It cannot be that God did not care. Why? Because God came to the world. Jesus came to find this blind man and then healed him. He had to come to our world to pay for our sins, and one day he will end all evil and suffering without ending us. In the next slide, if I can, there's a line that says, why do bad things happen to good people? And this is our question, isn't it? And I think the best answer was given by the late R.C. Sproul. He said, that only happened once, and he volunteered. The only good person who lived for the sake of others throughout his life was Jesus Christ. And he died in painful agony. And he did volunteer. Why did he do that? Because of us. Because he loved us. That's why he suffered injustices. He was abandoned not only by his friends, but by his loving father on the cross. He experienced God-forsaken darkness. So friends, if you are suffering today, or if you know someone who is, don't say, I must be a bad person that God has to punish me. Not necessarily that was caused by your sin. It cannot be that God punishing you for your sins because Jesus was already punished for your sins. You're not being abandoned by God because Jesus was abandoned on the cross and he cannot be punished for the same sin twice. I want to close with the story of another lady. I don't have the picture of this lady. Because the story that we have in John's uh, gospel is uh, a man, so here are two ladies, Helen Keller, and the second one is a lady called Fanny Crosby. Fanny lived um, with endless suffering. Her father, John, was never remembered by little Fanny because he died in her 12th month, so when she was still a baby. And not only that, when she was six weeks old, she caught a slight cold in her eyes. The family physician was away, so her mother called a country doctor to treat her, and this doctor prescribed a hot mustard I'm not sure what that is. I think it's some sort of a bomb applied to her eyes and then destroyed her sight completely. Imagine you have a baby, right? So cute, so tiny, so precious. And this doctor just applied something that made her blind the rest of her life. And the family later learned that this man was not qualified to practice medicine, but he had left town as was and was never heard of again. And if I were Fanny, I would feel completely crushed. My life deteriorates from that point onwards because now I couldn't see. But she said to her mom, Mother, don't worry. I know when she was later uh, as a grown-up that this is to fulfill God's purpose. And you know, 
what she did in her life. She wrote 9,000 hymns. She wrote, To God be the glory. Pass me not, O gentle Savior. Blessed assurance, Jesus is mine. See, all those hymns that have been sung from generations to generations was written by one woman who was blind from the age of six weeks. And she said to her mom, don't worry about me, mom. In fact, if I were given an opportunity to be born again, I want to be born blind so that I'm not tempted by all the glitters that the world offers. And I can focus on my gentle Savior. And when I see him face to face, I want his face to be the first face that I can see. Friends, she was blind so that the glory of God can be manifested in her life. I want you to reflect on what you just heard. And if you are experiencing suffering this morning, just come to Him. Come to Christ who not only cares for you, for you, but He already comes for you and dies for you. Let us pray. Let us bow our heads.